Hey, good morning, y'all. Welcome to Trailhead. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor. Thanks for joining us this morning. We are um, going to be concluding our Holier Than Thou sermon series this morning. Uh, so go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going to be going over to Matthew 28 today. Matthew 28, uh, a little bit different than what's in the bulletin. Um, late in the week, kind of changed my text. Um, but we're going to be going to Matthew 28. If you're using one of our Bibles, we're going, go, going over to page 835. Page 835. Um, so, to remind you of some of the key things we've talked about over the course of this series. We've been walking through the life of Jesus to see what holiness looks like with skin on. Right? What does it look like in real life? Um, there are a lot of people walking around, a lot of very religious people, uh, like Simon the Pharisee. We looked at him in week one, if you guys remember him. Uh, he was perfectly content. Um, maybe a little smug, uh, but definitely content with his position in life, his attainment of spiritual achievement, um, and he was, he was cool to be around as long as his moral superiority was at least recognized, if not celebrated, he'd prefer that, but uh, at least recognized. Um, but if anyone questioned his moral credentials, if anyone got the kind of credit he thought he deserved, especially when those people were considered by him to be his moral inferiors, um, like the woman was in the story, the woman from the city who was a sinner that Jesus declared holy. Um, yeah, he, he didn't like that so much, right? Uh, he went from, from uh, kind of a contented smugness to looking like he got baptized in lemon juice, right? I mean, just sour, just sour. Um, not a, not a, he just, his whole life puckered up, right? And, uh, and that's what we look like, y'all. When, when we see holiness as the result of our moral self-improvement projects, right? When we, when we approach holiness like a giant game of shoots and ladders, we talked about that in week one, right? The goal of each day is, is to move a little bit farther up the board, right? And, and hopefully hit a ladder, right? And make a big jump, right? But if nothing else, definitely don't lose any ground and man, do not hit one of those shoots. Do not hit a slide, because that backsliding, man, just you'll lose years of progress overnight, and you'll have to start the, the difficult grind of climbing all over again, right? And, and here's the challenge with, with viewing holiness in that way as this ever upward climb of moral self-improvement uh, is that we will invariably have to find a way to measure our progress, which means we're going to have to compare. Right? And we think, well, I'll just compare myself to myself. Right? I'll compare myself today to myself yesterday, myself this year to myself last year. But that's not the way a comparative paradigm works. Once you decide the world is comparative, you will not be able to help but compare yourself, not just to yourself, but to others. And you will start ranking where people are on the hill of moral self-improvement. You're, you're going to find those that you think are, are doing better than you and you, you want to be like them or potentially you feel threatened by them or insecure around them. You're going to find others that are farther down the hill from you and you're going to feel superior to them. Maybe you feel, you know, kind of that good-natured self-pity toward them. Maybe you can fix them, you know. Maybe if they just start doing some of the good things you're doing and stop doing some of the bad things you've learned how to avoid, they too could 
find out how to move up the playing board like you have. Y'all, this is a miserable way to live. This is a miserable way to live. Because when when you're living like that, when you're living in a comparative world where where you're just always, um, you know, you're just you're just working, 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 trying to grind it out, trying to, you know, hustling your way up a little bit farther uh, up this board. Um, you swing from pride to shame. Right? When you're doing well, you can't help but get puffed up a little bit in, in your self, you know, your self-conceit. And, and what ends up happening is, is that puffed up, you, you start seeing yourself as stronger than you actually are. You start seeing yourself as a greater success than, than you are. You start seeing yourself as superior to others. And then the flip side is when you fail, you feel shame. You feel exposed. You feel like a fraud. You feel like everything was lost and you've been completely ruined and you swing from pride to shame and pride to, to shame. That's miserable. Neither mopey or smug. <laughs> There's no way to do life. Um, as we have seen over this series, as we have looked at holiness, some of the key principles, right? We've seen that holiness is not comparative. You can't compare holiness. You either are holy or you're not. Because holiness is a gift to us from God in grace, where he sets us apart to his love, right? We think holiness is about our setting ourselves apart from sin. But instead of focusing on what we've been set apart from, holiness calls us to see what we've been set apart to. We've been set apart by God to his love. He's the one who set us apart with the purpose of, of giving us a greater experience of his grace. Holiness is either yours or it's not. And if you've believed in Jesus, it's yours. It's a gift. Now you can grow in your experience of that holiness. You can grow in the transformative process of that holiness, right? You can become more like Jesus. You've been declared to be like Jesus by the grace of God because he died for you and he rose again on your behalf, right? But, but you can grow to be more like Jesus, but you grow to be more like Jesus in the same way you became like Jesus to begin with. In other words, you grow in holiness the same way you received holiness, by growing in grace. You received holiness by grace, you have to grow in grace. You received it as a gift of love, you have to grow in your experience of love. That is how you grow in holiness. Because holiness is fundamentally relational, not performative. Holiness isn't about your moral self-improvement. It's about your learning to respond to love. That's the central problem with humanity. Not just that we do bad things, but why we do bad things. It's because we've been cut off from God who is love, the source of all that we desire. So learning how to respond to God's love and learning how to grow in his love is the path back to sanity, the path back to holiness. It is relational, not performative, we receive it in relationship, and we can only grow in it in relationship. So it doesn't look like climbing a hill of moral self-improvement. It looks a lot more like bearing the fruit of the Spirit. All right? He is called the Holy Spirit, after all. And if the fruit that he bears isn't the manifestation of holiness, he is misnamed, right? So holiness looks like love. That's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And then all the good stuff that comes with it, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control we can only grow in holiness by growing in love and that means we need each other right that's that's 
That's the part that we, we brought it around to. You can't grow into, in holiness in isolation. You can't grow in holiness by climbing into your holy closet and doing your holy things and coming out somehow holier than thou. And thou would be you 10 minutes ago, right? You grow in holiness by growing in relationship. You can't grow in holiness without growing in love. And that requires you to grow with people. People around you are not the obstacle to your growth in holiness. They're your opportunity for growth, right? We, we want to externalize our problems. If, if I just stop getting provoked by those people, if that guy just stopped saying stupid things in community group, if that person just wouldn't vote for that person, if, if they would stop asking questions that I don't like to be asked and making me think about things I don't want to think about, then I could finally be holy. No, you would not. You could just deceive yourself into thinking you were. Relationships don't create your problem of unholiness they just bring it out but it's in relationship that not only is your unholiness revealed but you get to grow in your experience of holiness by learning how to love right because we grow in holiness by growing in our ability to love and i mean actually love not just value love right we like oh i love love no you don't you love to feel good about yourself you love to be around people who make you feel good about yourself you love to pour out on love on people who make you feel loved right but what about loving people who don't like you what about loving people who don't look like you vote like you value like you think like you that's a lot harder and a lot costlier, and that's actually love. Love is not simply responding to something we find lovely. Love is the generous impulse of grace. And because it is the generous impulse of grace, it isn't a response to what we find lovely. It is a gift to those that we believe are worthy of love. And who is worthy of love? Everyone created in the image of God. And that's pretty much everyone, right? So that's why, honestly, a lot of times um, we'd rather be on the moral hill of self-improvement. <laughs> It'd be a whole lot easier to try to fix myself than to love people. I mean, I, let's just be honest. Like, it'd be a whole lot easier to, you know, get a new book that helps me with my, you know, like I can stop doing these things and start doing these things and I can, I can get accountability partners and I can, I can do these things, right? But to love people requires me to be vulnerable, and I don't like to be vulnerable because when I'm vulnerable, I can get hurt. And it makes me feel powerless. It makes me feel fear. It makes me feel things I don't like to feel. Love has a way of awakening that sense of vulnerability but actual love is generous vulnerable patient and hope filled even when it's hard and that's why it's a lot like the cross we talked about this last week right um that that the cross isn't simply a historical event that we believe in it's a pattern of life to know Christ and him crucified isn't simply to believe that he died for my sin and rose again, but to recognize that Jesus was modeling a way of doing life instead of approaching life like this, powering up to defeat every obstacle and enemy. Instead of withdrawing like this every time things get uncomfortable and finding the back door and quietly disappearing because it's better to be polite than it is to be rude, we learn to live like this. Vulnerable 
in love. In love instead of, instead of running or, or fighting, instead of picking up the manipulative weapons of, of the power of this world. Um, we instead trust the power of love. Yeah. See, I get, on the one hand, I get it, man. It's, it's like, I, I totally want to trust in Jesus, the crucified Savior, the crucified and risen Savior. That's really cool. He took all my bad stuff and he gives me all his good stuff. Like, that's a really good deal. He takes all my sin and I get all his righteousness. That's, that's humbling, but it's not very costly. But see, Jesus doesn't simply call us to receive his righteousness. He calls us to walk in his love, and that is costly. Because that requires me to grow in the strength of love. But here's the thing. Um, holiness, that love, isn't just costly, it's rewarding. More rewarding than you know. Because it doesn't simply lead you to be vulnerable. It is in vulnerability that you discover the beauty of love. It is the only path to true transformative joy. And that's what I want to focus on this morning, right? We're going to spend the rest of our time kind of getting to that, that, that ultimately this is the path to what you most deeply crave. All right, so let's take a look at Matthew 28. Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. Long introduction this morning, but uh, last sermon in the series, so I had to summarize the entire series. There we go. So Matthew 28, we're looking at verses 1 through 10 and 16 through 20, starting in verse 1. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy ran to tell his disciples and behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. Drop, drop down to verse 16. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, last week we left off with Jesus hanging dead on the cross. And so, whoop. That's all right. That was a well-punctuated explosion, right? We talk about Jesus dead on the cross and startles everybody to wake. I love it because this week we get to start with the resurrection, right? If we're going to end last week with the crucifixion, this week we get to start with the empty tomb, right? And, and Jesus coming back to life, right? It is beautiful. The power of love has exposed the weakness of the love of power. 
right? The power of this world tries to tempt you with promises and keep you in line with threats of fear. But at the end of the day, the power of the world is nothing more than the temporary gift of pleasure or the threat of death. But what is the threat of death when your best friend just came back from the dead? When he's standing there with the power of resurrection, right? What are you going to do? Threaten me with death? <laughs> like, have you seen my friend? Like, he already defeated your worst weapon, right? I am in him, and I am secure in him. You, can, you, don't, you don't have anything to threaten me with, right? I am secure in life because he is the resurrection and the life. The power of love has proven superior to the love of power. And the power of death is simply powerless in the face of resurrection. So Jesus rose from the dead. And the first witnesses, Matthew tells us, to this resurrection were Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. Um, all four gospel writers tell us that the first witnesses of the resurrection were, in fact, women. Um, this is an interesting flex. Um, first thing Jesus does when he rises from the dead is say, I'm going to honor the people you dishonor. I'm going to the, empower the people you think have no power. Women in the first century were on the lowest rung of the social chain. They, they had no authority. They had no legal voice. They couldn't even be witnesses in court. And yet Jesus chose those that the world disempowered to empower. Some theologians call them the apostles to the apostles because the word apostle means one who is chosen to carry an official message, a sent one. And they were sent by Jesus. They were empowered. They were the witnesses of the resurrection and they were sent to the apostles with the message of the resurrection. The first thing Jesus does when he rises from the dead is he dignifies people that the world gives no dignity to. The first thing Jesus does when, he, when the power of love has been proven victorious over the love of power is he honors those who have no honor. He does the very same thing he did on the cross. He continues to meet people in their vulnerability. He continues to meet people who, who culture disvalues, dishonors, silences, and he honors them, dignifies them, and gives them a voice. This is remarkable, by the way, um, from an apologetic perspective, you know, just the, the fact that this is the text, <laughs> because even for the disciples to write this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all recount it, even for them to write it means that their accounts were going to be discounted. People were going to read this, and the first thing they were going to think was, you can't trust women, they're not, like, they would have, they so if they were making this up, this is not a detail they would have included. Let's just go there. You know what I'm saying? Like, like this actually made it harder for people to receive the message because it made it harder for them to receive the message. The women go back to the disciples and they're like, the tomb is empty. Jesus is raised. We've seen him. And they're like, you're crazy. They didn't believe them. They discounted their voices. Now, Luke tells us that Peter was riled up enough that he got up and he raced to the tomb because he had to see for himself. Um, and I love John's account. Um, I love all the details. So no one account gives you all the details surrounding this stuff. But in John's account, we find out that Peter didn't run alone. 
John ran with him and outran him. Like, for whatever reason, John felt compelled to include that little fact that John actually beat him to the tomb. I, <laughs> I, dudes. Anyway, um, but John tells us that he gets there and he peeks inside. Like, he stops outside and reverently and quietly peeks inside. And while he's peeking inside, Peter just blasts right past him because he's Peter. And he just goes right on in. Forget this, this you know, respecting the dead thing and, and we don't go into sacred. No, man, he just blows right in because he's going to find out what's going on. None of this is important. But it happened. Jesus rose from the dead and it absolutely impacted everyone, right? And he said, meet me over there on that hill because I've got something really important to tell you. So they went to Galilee and they met him and he gave them what is now known as the Great Commission. Um, The Great Commission. The Great Commission, it sounds so lofty. The Great Commission essentially is Jesus showing up and saying, look, I died and I rose again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, right? So, so Jesus as God already had all authority, right? He was the son of God, but he became the son of man. And as the son of man, he actually won what Adam had lost. He regained where Adam, what Adam had betrayed. He succeeded where Adam had failed. And as a result, he became authoritative, not simply as the son of God, but as the son of man, he was human as humanity was meant to be, and he succeeded where humanity had failed. And he was going to recreate a human race. He was going to recreate a human society with himself sitting on the throne, the throne of David. He now had all authority in heaven on earth. And as a result, we get our marching orders. He says, look, I'm king, but I'm going to be leaving. So I'm going to tell you what I want you to do in the meantime. Like, I'm leaving you here with a reason. I'm leaving you with a purpose, right? The Great Commission is very simply our mission for life. It is our purpose and our goal. So take a look at verses 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Go therefore. It sounds so dramatic that way, doesn't it? Go therefore, right? It's as if Jesus is standing on the hill and he's like, go! And he's pointing to the farthest areas of all of creation. It sounds so dramatic and big and important and even a bit scary. Um, I was actually speaking at a missions conference. This was years and years ago, my previous life in some ways. Um, but I'm at a missions conference and it's, it's on, this is like the theme verse. And, and there's a big banner on the back wall that says, go in all capitals, right? And so I'm up there basically teaching. That's kind of inappropriate, right? That's not really what the verse is saying. Um, I was explaining that that the banner kind of missed the point of the verse and the verb go, right? Because he wasn't saying go. What he was saying was when I'm done talking, you're going to go. You're going to go. And as you are going, make disciples. He wasn't giving this big, weighty call that only some people would respond to. He was giving them the marching orders of their life. As you are going, as you are living your lives, do it with gospel intentionality. Live out your discipleship. So I was in the middle of explaining all of this at this missions 
conference, and right as I'm making this point, there's this horrific tearing noise behind me. I'm not making this up. This actually happened. And I turn behind me, and the, the whole thing just comes off the wall. It had been taped up there, and they just rip, and the whole thing fell down. And I, I will tell you that everybody paid attention at that point, as you should now. Yeah, um, when, when something that dramatic happens as you're making a point, it's almost like God putting an exclamation point on it. At least that's how I felt about it. Um, but here's the reality, what this verse means. Y'all are a tough crowd, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. Um, I got a really big laugh in the first service. Not that I compare, because life's not comparative, but um, <laughs> here's, here's what he's saying. As you are going, live out your discipleship. As you are working your job, as you are taking your classes and studying, as you are coaching your kids' games, as you are hanging out with your neighbors, as you are commuting to work, as you are hanging out with your family over the holidays, as you are living, make disciples. Second thing I don't like about the way this kind of comes across is that way it says make disciples. Doesn't that sound like something it's supposed to, you're just supposed to go do, it's like a task that has to be done. Go make disciples. And then you're like, well, okay, yeah, I'll do that. How, how do I make them? Is it like a cake? Are there ingredients? Do I have to follow a certain recipe? Like, how does this happen? Um, so this is not a bad way to translate this. The challenge really is the translation. Um, things that are said in the original language in Greek sometimes kind of lose some of their emphasis when they're translated into English. The word, the verb make isn't even in the original language, okay? Disciple is the verb. As you are going, disciple. As you are going, disciple, which, which is different because it's not saying go do this task to others. What it's saying is go live out this identity. You are disciples. You are followers. You are those who have been redeemed by grace and are growing in grace. Go live that reality out as you are living your lives. As you're going, disciple. Disciple yourselves. Disciple each other. Disciple people out in the world, right? Go live out your identity as disciples in such a way that others want to become disciples with you. That others are influenced, right? Live out your experience of grace in such a way that others also want to experience grace. And this should result in two things. And by the way, this is, so when you hear me say things like the Great Commission is to be disciples who make disciples, like I'm not adding to this verse. What I'm trying to do is draw out the meaning of this central verb. Be disciples who go do discipling. Be disciples who disciple, right? So this should result, Jesus tells us, in two things. Unbelievers becoming believers and believers learning how to live out their discipleship more faithfully. Those are the two things that should happen as we are going, living out the reality of our discipleship identity as those who have received grace and helping others grow in grace, right? It says, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That, those are people who are making professions of faith, people who are actually saying, yeah, now I believe in Jesus, right? I've heard this message. I've seen your life. I want that. I want to be part of that. 
right? So they believe in Jesus and they're baptized. And then also it says, commanding them to obey all that, or, or commanding them, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you, right? Which we would call that discipleship. Like that's how you help people grow in their Christian walk. And in many churches, they actually separate these two activities as if they were two separate and distinct things, right? Evangelism is something that you learn so, so there are techniques that you can learn to sit down with somebody who doesn't know Jesus and, and you can learn how to have non-awkward conversations with them, find gospel opportunities where you're like, oh, hey, there's a felt need and I can sh- sh- tell you how the gospel meets that felt need and, and I can invite you in, right? And none of that's bad, but it can be manipulative when you start seeing people as projects, when you start seeing people as targets. You start building relationships with people not to know them and not to love them, but to convert them. And when you find out that that conversion isn't quickly coming, you move on to others that you think are easier targets. Okay, that's evangelism. Discipleship, on the other hand, we think of churches create these systems of discipleship and and discipleship is knowing the right things and doing the right things. And so what we do is we create these Bible studies so you can learn the right information and know the right things. And then we give you this list of do's and don'ts. These are the things that you do in order to be a disciple and these are the things that you don't do to be a disciple. And, And so you got evangelism and you got discipleship and that misses the entire point of the Great Commission. These are not two separate activities. They are one activity. When it says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you, that word teach is disciple. It's the same word used in the, in the previous phrase, right? Be disciples. Disciple those who are far from God by living out your gospel identity, by sharing with them your hope, your excitement, your joy. Be a believer who drinks deeply of grace and then share that openly, honestly with others so that they want to come to the fountain of grace. So that they're like, man, what is that hope you have in you? I need some of that. Tell them about Jesus, right? So you disciple those who are far from God to draw near to God and you disciple those who are, who are walking with God to fall more in love with the grace of God. That's how you disciple them, not by replicating your good knowledge and your good behavior, but by teaching them how to be utterly and completely dependent on grace. This is how I've discovered grace. This is how God has set me free, not to make yourself the hero, but to continually lift Jesus up as the hero. It's all discipleship. It's all one activity. It's all love. The heart of discipleship is love. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. But Steve, it says that we're to teach them to obey all the things I've commanded you. Surely it's got to be more complicated than simply living out grace, loving people, encouraging others to come to the fountain of grace and grow in love. Doesn't it it have to be a little more complicated than that, right? Um, Shouldn't, anyway. I mean, you know, Jesus commanded like thousands of things. I don't know if you've read the Gospels, but I've never sat down to try to make a complete list because it would be a complete waste of my time. I'm not gonna do it. But you would end up with a huge long list of all the things Jesus commanded, right? Is that really what Jesus was saying? Teach them to obey all the things I've commanded you? Like, okay, here's the list of one to 78 or one to 220 or whatever it is. No, it is not, right? The last night Jesus was on earth, just days before he has this conversation with them, John 13 through 17 tells us this, this long conversation Jesus had with his disciples the night he was going to be betrayed, like literally hours before he was going to be crucified. And the central point of that entire conversation is this. 
love is the most important thing. Take a look at these verses. This is John 15, 10 through 14. Start at the beginning. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. All right, pause there. A lot of us get a little hinky and a little nervous at this point. It's like, oh, I have to abide in your commandments to abide in your love. I have to obey your commandments. Okay, give me the list of commandments because I don't even know what they are. I really want to abide in your love, so I really want to do the right things, right? But Jesus goes on, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Oh, man, holy cow, you've, you've done way better than I ever could. But all right, if that's what I have to do. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and your joy might be full. I'm not feeling very joyful. All right, then he goes on, he says this. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Of all the things Jesus commanded, this is the one command that summarizes all the other commands. This is the foundation of the whole thing. Greater love is this than that, that someone lay down his life for his friends. This is my commandment. You want to abide in my love? Obey my commandment. What is my commandment? Keep humbly responding to my grace. Have a heart undone by its pride. Stop turning to your idols and your worldly power. Stop trying to control and manipulate others. Stop trying to build a life apart from me and instead receive life from me. Respond to my love. And as you respond to my love, you will be transformed by my love. You will abide in my love. And those who abide in me beginning of John 15 tells us are fruitful we are the branches he is the vine those who abide in me bear much fruit see listen discipleship isn't just information that you pass on it's not a set of doctrinal truths that you have to download it's not a program you have to work your way through discipleship's an experience an experience founded in and bounded by relationship it's a way of living life that relates to others in love. It's learning to live a life of vulnerability and honestly, honesty instead of a life of fear and pride and self-improvement and pretending and performing. It's learning to live in the power of love instead of being enslaved by the love of power. That's what holiness is. That's what holiness is. You, know, you want to know what holiness looks like? Holiness looks like uh, what happened at the men's retreat this weekend. Um, Friday and Saturday, a big group of guys got to hang out at a retreat. Not everybody got to be there, but man, those that were there, man, what a, an incredible weekend. But here's the thing. This retreat wasn't full of a lot of, of posturing and bragging and, and, and here's where I'm getting it right and how you can get it right too. And you know what I loved about it? There was a group of guys they were taking real risks by being genuinely honest and vulnerable and saying this is where the grace of God met me in my weakness and where he'll meet you too this is how the love of God is setting me free and how the love of God can set you free too and you know what's beautiful about that kind of courage is that it's contagious as the leaders led out with that kind of vulnerability pretty soon in the conversations, you see guys taking risks and saying, you know, I haven't really ever talked about this, but let me tell you about this. Here's a struggle, or here's a challenge, or here's a way that I'm having a hard time believing the gospel. Or it was, that's holiness. That's what holiness looks like. 
holiness looks like our faithful volunteers stocking the food pantry at all hours of the night because there are some people who only come to the food pantry at night right so that those who come under the cover of darkness can have their needs met without having their shame exposed you know there's nothing shameful in coming to the food pantry but for some people they feel shame and so they come when others can't see them and so our faithful volunteers show up at really weird times to make sure it's stocked so that those who are coming at those weird times will have what they need that's holiness that's what holiness looks like it's when, when terrified parents open their homes and their hearts to take in foster kids So that those children in crisis can find a harbor for their for safety because they're they're in danger. Even if even if creating that harbor for the parents and the family causes them to suffer a storm they didn't have to endure. That's holiness. Holiness looks like a group, a community coming around those people who are making those sacrifices to pro- provide meals for them, to encourage them to offer respite care for them so that they can get a night off and regain a little bit of a, little bit of, uh, of a clear head. That's holiness. Holiness looks like someone who is absolutely exhausted, busy, and worn out. But when they see the look on their friend's face, they step out of that exhaustion and they say, hey, you want to talk? You look really sad. You look dejected. You look hurt. Hey, tonight after I finally get the kids to bed, you want to go grab a beer? Or you want to go have a phone call? Or That's holiness. That's what holiness looks like. People showing up to listen, to dignify, to honor, not to fix. That's what holiness looks like. Because holiness looks like love. That's what holiness looks like. It looks like humility. It looks like generosity. It looks like vulnerability. John 13, which is that same passage I just mentioned where Jesus that last night is having this big conversation with his disciples. Jesus told his disciples this this is how they're going to know you're my disciples by your love for one another not, not by your political convictions not by who you voted for not, not by what, what things you stand for or what things you stand against they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another the critical hallmark of our holiness is love The last, things, the last thing a, a discipleship community should ever do is make people feel judged or unworthy or unseen. A holy community will be, above all else, full of joy and humility and a willingness to love regardless of the circumstances. And the 
promise of holiness, what comes out of this is transcendent joy. Take a look again at that verse again. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and I abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. I'll tell you what, if the tank of my heart's going to be filled with anything, I want it to be filled with his joy. <laughs> That's some quality stuff right there. That's way better than the stuff I manufacture for myself. And not only that, man, he fills it up so that it's full. What that means, listen, what that means is that as we are growing in holiness, he not only increases our experience of joy, he increases the capacity for joy. We are not only filled with his joy, but we progressively are able to experience even more joy. It's not only the good stuff, it's a lot of stuff. It's the best stuff, and there's more, there's always more. So let me just go home, one back, one last time, and drive this point home. We tend to think that people are the roadblock of joy. If I can just stop having to deal with you, if I can just have to, if I could just stop having to talk to you, if I could, if I could just stop being around you when you're asking those questions or making those crazy statements or, or arguing about those things that are so silly to argue about, you exhaust me, you drive me crazy, you make me angry, you're my roadblock to joy. Listen. We may think that people are the problem when they make us feel certain things, that they're the hindrance to our holiness, but they're not putting those feelings in you. They're just the opportunity to draw them out. What we're talking about is not a joy that's dependent on the external circumstances of life. We're talking about a joy that you bring to those circumstances. It's a joy that is unshaken when it faces the difficulties of difficult people. It's a joy that transforms your experience of others because it is rooted in love. Listen, when you are able to love the person who annoys you, their annoyance is a whole lot less annoying. And you know this. Because you have to do this to be with anybody. To love somebody, to genuinely love them, changes your experience of them. It doesn't mean that they're no longer doing dumb things, saying dumb things, making sinful choices. It doesn't mean that at all, but it does mean that it changes how you respond to those choices and those provocations. It's easy to love people when they make you feel good. It's easy to love people when they make you feel attractive. And it's easy to love what you find lovely. But we grow in love when it is hard to love. We have to renew our experience in the love of Christ to learn how to love like Christ. We have to dig deep in being loved to learn how to love. We have to come back to the fountain of grace in order to learn how to grow in the generosity of grace. People are not the obstacle to holiness. They're the invitation to it. People are not the barrier. They're the door. 
Joy doesn't come from less conflict. It comes from more love. Joy doesn't come from fewer of those people. It comes from learning to love those people. Joy doesn't come from increased moral performance by beating yourself up and shaming yourself, by trying to fix yourself, puffing yourself up in pride, or beating yourself up in shame. It comes from learning to experience the love of God. It comes from learning to see yourself as God sees you and loving yourself even as God loves you. Not with a puffed up prideful love, but learning how to actually love yourself the same way God loves you, to give yourself the same grace God has given you. The great command says, love your neighbor as you love yourself. He wasn't being sarcastic. We actually have to learn to love ourselves with a healthy love, not, not a prideful love, a shameful love, a driving and performing love, but learning how to accept ourselves even as Christ does. And as we learn to extend love and grace to ourselves, we learn how to give love and grace to others. That's what I mean, man. It's a life of discipleship, discipling ourselves, discipling others, discipling the world. That's the great commission, the, the marching orders of our life, and it's how we obey the great command. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. It's the purpose of our lives. And the promise of holiness is joy. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. Christ's joy filling you to the brim. It doesn't mean you're not going to still be busy and tired, but it means you're still going to have the energy of joy and the exhaustion. It doesn't mean people aren't still going to be annoying and hard, but it does mean that their heart, that's not going to become toxic to your soul, inflaming your insecurities and, and making you fearful and, and self-protective and angry. It doesn't mean that you won't still have trials. But you're going to bring a very different energy to those trials because you're not looking to the circumstances around you for your strength. You're bringing your strength with you because it's Christ's. A holy community is a joyful community full of diversity, need, messiness, mistakes, glory, good conversations, hard conversations, confession, repentance, forgiveness, all of it, all of it. But it's also full of joy because joy shared is joy increased. Hmm. So let's be disciples and make disciples. So I'm going to close this in word of prayer. We're going to share communion. Father, we thank you. Um, and we thank you for the gift of grace that Jesus did die and rise again, that we might be forgiven and made new, that he was our, our substitute in death, that we might become his partner in blessing. And we thank you, Lord, that that isn't simply a historical reality from which we benefit. It is a present reality from which we grow. I pray, Lord, that you will give us the courage to see love not as a threat, but as an invitation. That we will learn to lay down the abusive power structures that, that are just woven into the fabric of, of this worldly um, uh, culture and world. Power structures of manipulation, power structures that, that disempower others for the gain of self, that, that are all about keeping what I have and getting more, that are all about self-protection and self-promotion. To set it all aside, to recognize that it is deceptive in its promise 
and powerless in its threat. That we stand with the crucified and risen one. That we have the hope of the resurrection. And we stand in the power of love. Lord, undo our pride. Comfort our fear. Call us out of our shame. Awaken us to the beauty of your forgiveness and empower us to forgive even as we've been forgiven. Let us grow rich in love that we might grow full of joy. That we might be disciples and fulfill the mission that you've entrusted to us as those who are loved and are called to love. We thank you for this grace in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and all of God's people said, Amen.